Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 256 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mysterious figure of St. Toribio Romo. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1900, a baby was born to a poor family in the Mexican state of Jalisco. The baby's name was Toribio Romo, and he would grow up to be a priest. But by the time of his priesthood, the Mexican state had begun persecuting the Catholic Church, and Toribio Romo was murdered by Mexican federal soldiers for being a priest. In 1992, he was beatified, and in the year 2000, John Paul II canonized him as a saint. But there's an ongoing mystery surrounding St. Toribio Romo. So who was he? What happened in his life? And what's that strange mystery that surrounds him today? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do you want to say about today's mystery before we begin? Well, I want to say that at first, it won't seem like a mystery. It'll seem like we're just telling the life story of a saint. It's a story with some very dramatic elements, but it won't initially seem to involve a mystery. Uh, however, even though we have a faith perspective on the show, Mysterious World is about mysteries. I don't do purely religious stories on the show. There are other venues for those. On Mysterious World, there's always a mystery, even if it's a solved one. So we are heading towards a mystery, and there will be a twist in the episode where we unveil it. So you'll want to stick around for that. How do you want to begin today? By talking briefly about the history of Mexico, the 19th century was a turbulent time in Mexican history. Between 1810 and 1829, the country won its independence from Spain. But even after independence, it went through a series of conflicts and wars, including the independence of Texas and the Mexican-American War. One of the wars in the 1850s was known as the War of Reform. We mentioned that war last week in episode 255 on the Knights of the Golden Circle. The War of Reform was the war that the Knights of the Golden Circle wanted to intervene in, though they didn't. During the War of Reform, the role of the church in Mexican society became an issue, and there were anti-Catholic persecutions at the time. Following this, in the 1860s, the French intervened and briefly turned Mexico back into a monarchy under Emperor Maximilian I, though it went back to being a republic after a few years. A stabilizing factor in Mexican politics was the advent of a leader named José de la Cruz Porfirio Díaz Morí, although he was popularly called Porfirio Díaz, and the period of his rule is known as the Porfiriato. It began in 1876 when he first took power, and it lasted for 31 years until 1911 when he was ousted from power. Like a lot of Mexican leaders in this period, Porfirio Diaz was considered a de facto dictator. But unlike other liberal Mexican leaders, he was not anti-clerical and did not enforce various anti-Catholic laws on the national level. So he got along with the Catholic Church, though other Mexican leaders still persecuted it locally. It was during the Porfiriato that the subject of our story was born. What can you tell us about him? 
His name was Toribio Romo Gonzalez, or Toribio Romo for short. Now, you might wonder if his first name, Toribio, is the same as the Latin and English name Tiberius, but it's not. The Latin and English equivalent of Toribio is Turibius, not Tiberius. He was born on April 16, 1900, in the Mexican state of Jalisco, which is in central Mexico on the Pacific coast. He was born in a rancheria or settlement named Santa Ana, which is near a, a town called Halosotitlan, or Halos for short. In his book, The Martyrdom of St. Toribio Romo, author James Murphy describes his early days. His parents, Patricia Roma and Juana Gonzalez, were descendants of Spanish families who had moved to the area some 200 years earlier. They were simple folk who eked out a living from the soil, raising seven children. Toribio was the fifth. On a diet of corn, beans, chili, onions, and meat once in a while. The food was adequate but boring, as was the way they dressed. Everyone, children and adults, wore the same thing. A shirt and pants made from a cheap, off-white cotton material called manta, and a hat made from cactus fiber. Despite the length of the walk to the church, Toribio did see priests, who also came to visit Santa Ana, and they made quite an impression on him. James Murphy reports, Toribio loved to play priest with his friends when they were alone in the fields, pretending to celebrate Mass on a makeshift altar with little chalices he had made from clay. His friends went along with the fantasy, although not without jokes and lots of playful kidding. When you are ordained, one of them said, I will be the turkey for your ordination dinner. Others said his interest in the priesthood was his way of avoiding having to work. Toribio took the kidding in good humor. And eventually, Toribio would begin pursuing a vocation as a priest. First, though, he needed to start getting an education, and one of Toribio's older sisters, whose name was Kika, made a surprising announcement. Murphy explains, Toribio needed to go to school, and because Santa Ana had no schools, most people there were illiterate, he had to move to Halos for his elementary education. It was at this point that Kika made a surprising announcement to the family. She intended to break off her engagement to be married, she told them, and moved to Halos to help her brother with his studies. It was a remarkable sacrifice in the beginning of a relationship that would last throughout Toribio's life as a priest. Now, Murphy portrays this as a sacrifice on Kika's part, and that may well have been part of it, but there was undoubtedly more to it than that. Uh, Kika was already engaged to a man, and if someone you're engaged to be married to tells you that she's calling off the marriage so that she can help her little brother go to elementary school, at a minimum, that tells me she's just not that into you, dude. It also might suggest that Kika was not yet ready for marriage and was panicking, or that she realized her fiancé would not make a good husband. In any event, she was looking for a way out of the marriage, and she found one. So Toribio and Kika moved to Halos for his education, and eventually the whole family moved there. Unfortunately, not all was well in Mexico at this time. Around 1911, Porfirio Diaz fell from power, and that caused a new period of instability. What can you tell us about that? Well, Porfirio Diaz had initially decided he would retire from office in 1910, but as the election approached, he changed his mind and decided to run for office again. He also, being a dictator, jailed his chief rival in the election, a man named Francisco Madero. 
The election was subject to massive fraud, and it was announced that Diaz had been reelected almost unanimously, with Madero getting only a tiny number of votes. The fraud was obvious to everyone, and Madero called for a revolution, and the people revoluted, beginning what's now known as the Mexican Revolution. Diaz was forced to resign from office in 1911, and he went into exile in Spain. But that didn't stop the revolution. The instability lasted from 1911 to 1928, a period of 17 years. And during that time, Mexico had 13 presidents, with some of them only serving a matter of days in office. In fact, one of the interim presidents, uh, Pedro Lascorain, was only in office for 45 minutes, just long enough to appoint another guy to become the next president in order to give a recent coup d'etat the appearance of legality. But worse, for the 95-plus percent of the population that were Catholics, the fall of Porfirio Diaz meant the end of religious toleration. The new leaders started persecuting the church and enforcing the anti-clerical laws that were on the books, so that element will be coming back into our story. Meanwhile, what was going on with Toribio and his family? They were out in the countryside, so they were relatively insulated from things. And in 1912, the year after Porfirio Diaz fell and when Toribio was 12 years old, he took the step he took the next step of his journey to the priesthood and became a minor seminarian. For those who may not be aware, a minor seminary is a kind of preparatory school for becoming a priest. In Toribio's day, it was a kind of middle school or high school for boys that expressed an interest in possibly becoming priests one day. Murphy describes his days in minor seminary. His Spanish appearance made him stand out. He was tall and light-skinned with blue eyes but he had little interest in being tidy and well-groomed. His disheveled appearance just added to his charm among the students. Academically, Toribio was at the top of his class. He had a special love of Latin and used to take over the class when the professor could not make it, a role that earned him the nickname of maestro, or teacher. Not surprisingly, he was elected class president. He took a special interest in a document that had been written a few years before by Pope Leo XIII. In 1891, so nine years before Toribio was born, Pope Leo had issued an encyclical called Rerum Novarum. It dealt with the condition of working-class people. Among other new things, it defended their right to form trade unions and to earn a living wage, meaning one that you could support a family on. Rerum Novarum is considered the foundational text of modern Catholic social teaching, and since the condition of working-class people was a big issue in Mexico, Toribio was very interested in the document once he discovered it. He was the chairman of a student study group devoted to the encyclical, and the students even set up classes for workers in town to educate them about it. When Toribio would come home to Santa Ana for the summers, he would teach an outdoor catechism class to local children. Um, he displayed a sense of humor working with them, and Murphy explains... Many years later, one of Toribio's students still laughed about the surprise they got one day when they ate the candies he brought them. They turned out to be hot chilies. In 1920, when he was 20 years old, Toribio entered the major seminary in Gua Guadalajara. A major seminary is for adult men who are now beginning their immediate training for the priesthood. That same year, he wrote a one-act play called Vamos al Norte, 
which is Spanish for let's go north. His younger relative, David Romo, explains, One of the great ironies of my uncle's story is that, like most of the Mexican Catholic priests of his day, Father Romo was fervently opposed to emigration to the United States. In 1920, he wrote a slapstick morality play titled Let's Go North. The one-act comedy depicts a cultural clash between Don Ragaciano, an Americanized Mexican emigrant who returns to his village with airs of superiority, and Sancho, a sharp-witted farmer who never left. At first, Don Rogaciano impresses the locals by flaunting his newly acquired English, proclaiming himself a lover of progress and civilization, and denouncing the village priests as money-grubbing retrograde obscuritanists. But by the end of the play, Sancho beats the returning emigrant into submission with a cane and forces him to stand before the audience like a mannequin. Don Rogaciano, with his slicked-back hair, sweet-smelling cologne, and high-water pants, is the very embodiment of the corrosive influences that returning emigrants bring back from the other side. Arrogance, irresponsibility, the loss of family values, materialism, and sexual ambiguity. If you betray your country and go north, Toribio's play warned its Mexican audience, you might come back as a rooster hen that neither crows nor lays eggs. Or even worse, a Protestant. Take a good look at what becomes of the Mexican who goes north, Sancho says near the end of the play. He ends up a man without religion, without a country or home, a coward, an effeminate who is incapable of feeling shame for having abandoned his responsibilities to his family. Despite this, the roads are packed with Mexicans headed toward the United States in search of bitter bread. Everywhere you hear the rallying cry, let's go north. So even as a seminarian, the future father Toribio uh, was warning people about the possible consequences of going to the United States. And you'll want to remember that because the subject will come back into our story later. So when was Tribio ordained a priest? Less than three years after he entered the major seminary. At the end of December 1922, he was ordained to the priesthood by Archbishop Francisco Orozco of Guadalajara. This required a dispensation because under the 1917 Code of Canon Law, which was then in effect, you had to be at least 25 years old to be ordained a priest, something that's still true today. Since Toribio was only 22 years old, the archbishop had to give him a dispensation for early ordination. But he apparently thought Toribio was ready for the priesthood. Uh, the dicey political situation with renewed persecution of the church also may have played a role in that as the archbishop would need priests. Murphy describes the situation. Orozco was one of the giants of the church in Mexico, a bearded patriarch who was admired by all for his leadership during a time of persecution. Yes, persecution. By this time, the peace between church and state was long over. Three presidents had come and gone since the days of Porfirio Diaz, and the atrocities of the past were back with a vengeance. Out-of-control government troops were drinking beer out of chalices, shooting up sacred images, and forcibly taking over church buildings as barracks. Archbishop Orozco was a particular target of this campaign. At one point in 1918, the government exiled him to the U.S. Do you promise obedience to me and my successors? The archbishop asked young Toribio in the ordination ceremony that day. Yes, I do, Toribio responded, knowing full well he was entering the priesthood in troubled times. Toribio then went back to Santa Ana to celebrate his first public mass in January of 1923, and it was a big deal. They had just built a church in the village, and I mean they had literally just built it. 
they laid the last stone in place only hours before the new Father Toribio celebrated his first public mass there. And Father Toribio was the first priest ever to come from the village of Santa Ana, so he was a source of special pride for the local people. Did he get to stay and become the village priest in Santa Ana? No, he was assigned to duties elsewhere. Um, As normal for a new pastor, for a new priest, he wasn't a full pastor, but an assistant priest working under another pastor. And he was transferred around quite a bit, which is not too unusual for a new priest, you know, so that he can get experience working in different kinds of situations. But Father Toribio's situation was a bit different. He ended up having five pastoral assignments in his five years of priesthood. All of them were in his home state of Jalisco, and they weren't all happy. His first assignment was in Sayula. Uh, The assignment lasted only a year, and he did not get along with the pastor he was working under, which was a little odd because this pastor was the priest who had baptized him as a baby and who likely stayed at his parents' house on visits to Santa Ana, so they had a personal connection. We don't know what the problem was, but in later years, the pastor is reported to have said, How I made him suffer, I understood too late. Father Toribio was then transferred to Tuxpan, and this assignment also lasted only a year. We're not sure why he was transferred, but local parishioners reported seeing Father Toribio cry as he got onto the train to leave. His third assignment was in Yawalika. Uh, the assignment lasted only a few months, and it was the worst one yet. The local pastor forbade Father Toribio from going out in public, from praying the rosary in public, and from saying mass in public. We're not sure why Father Toribio was being punished in this way, but one thing he did do was write to a pastor in the nearby town of Kukio. This pastor was named Father Justino Orona, who took, um, kind of took him under his wing. You said we don't know why Father Trubio had these troubles, but have any ideas been proposed? One that has been proposed is that it may have been Father Toribio's interest in Rerum Novarum and Catholic social teaching. Pope Leo's encyclical was perceived at the time as being rather liberal, what with supporting the rights of workers to form unions, and that was not popular with a lot of rich people, including in Mexico, where wealthy landowners didn't like the idea. The wealthy landowners were often close to some of the clergy, and it's been speculated that some of the older, more politically conservative pastors didn't like Father Toribio promoting these ideas, because one of the things he would do when he went places, in addition to teaching catechism classes for children, was to teach local working men about their rights under Catholic social teaching. You can imagine how the local landowners would regard an uppity young priest stirring up trouble among the local working men and how they may have then gone and complained to the pastors he was working under to try to get him to stop. So we don't ultimately know what the problem was, or even if it was the same problem in each place, because there could have been more than one issue, but that's the best supported theory that I've heard. What ended up happening after his third assignment? Father Orona, the pastor in Cuquillo, had uh, befriended Father Toribio and written to the Archbishop on his behalf, and Archbishop Orozco 
ended up assigning Father Toribio to Cuquillo, uh, where he could then work under Father Orona. And this fourth assignment was the happiest of Father Toribio's priesthood. He and Father Orona got along really well, and Father Orona seemed to be on a similar page politically. For example, he didn't have a problem with Father Toribio setting up a study group for working men on the social teaching of Leo XIII, or Father Toribio's other efforts to help the poor. At this point in Father Toribio's ministry, what was happening in Mexican politics? Things had taken a turn for the worse. At the end of 1924, a man named Plutarco Elias Calles had become the president. Like others of this period, Plutarco Calles could be very harsh, but he is recognized as having his good points. Murphy explains, He had deep convictions about justice and equality, and he expanded government programs for the disadvantaged in a nation that has always had a gap between the haves and the have-nots. Who should be able to reach out a hand to the poor, he asked a reporter once, then answered the question himself. Only one agency, the government. So that's a little dark. Only the government should be allowed to help the poor, not anybody else. The fate of the poor should be in the government's hands and the government's alone. Murphy continues. During his time as president, the government did indeed extend a hand to the poor. Callas made education more available by expanding the network of schools. He'd been a teacher himself once organized housing projects and public health programs, accelerated the breakup of large haciendas, including church-owned lands, and made travel a lot easier by building more railroads. He even conducted a campaign against alcoholism. Most importantly, he institutionalized the succession of power in Mexico. Up to that time, changes in office had been marked by violent revolutions and shaky coalitions, and the country had been run by military strongmen. But Callas had a deeper respect for the law than most strongmen. Andy understood that the way to put an end to military governments was with a stronger political system. Despite these qualities, there was one subject on which Caius was really sensitive. Religion. He was personally an atheist, and he hated the Catholic Church with a passion. When he had been governor of the state of Sonora, he once decided to ban every Catholic priest from the state. After Calles became president, tensions with the church started to rise, and this had implications for Fathers Arona and Toribio in Cuquillo. Murphy explains, It was in this town that a famous open-air mass was celebrated on a hill outside the town on the Feast of Christ the King in 1925. Fathers Toribio and Arona organized that mass, and people came from miles around, some 15,000 in all, in a kind of public defiance of the government's policy of persecution. It was a heavenly experience, Toribio's brother Roman recalled, as the mountains vibrated with the cries of Viva Cristo Rey, or Long Live Christ the King. During exposition of the Blessed Sacrament that day, the people took an oath to defend the faith even with their lives. Father Toribio joined in that oath, as did Father Arona. The act would prove prophetic for both priests. Caius was so hostile to religion that in 1926, the American ambassador James Sheffield wrote to the U.S. Secretary of State and told him, The president has become so violent on the religious question that he has lost control of himself. When this topic has been dealt with in his presence, his face turns red, and he has hit the table to express his hate and profound hostility toward the practice of religion. 
Despite this, he seemed to soften at least somewhat before the end of his life. He died in late 1928, and for some months before his death, he reportedly attended spiritualist meetings attempting to communicate with souls in the afterlife. However, what he's especially remembered for in religious terms is enforcing the anti-clerical laws and even passing new ones. To cite just one example of how Caius attacked the church, if a priest appeared in public wearing clerical garb, so dressed like a priest, he had to pay a fine of 500 pesos. That was worth about 250 U.S. dollars at the time, or $4,200 today after all the inflation the government has caused. So wear your clerical collar in public and you've got to pay $4,200. And that's just one of the anti-clerical measures that Caius instituted in 1926. There were many, many more, so I won't describe them all, but the law also gave the state power to jail priests who criticized the government for five years uh, to regulate the number of priests in an area and even reduce the number to zero. Offending priests didn't even get a trial by jury, and many priests were simply murdered. How did the church respond? Caius signed the new legislation known as the Le Caius, or Caius's Law, in June of 1926, and it went into effect the next month. President Caius also ramped up the tension by ordering all the churches in Father Toribio's state of Jalisco to be shut, and they remained closed for two years. In July, a period of passive resistance on the part of the church began. Among other things, and with the approval of Pope Pius XI, the Catholic bishops in instigated an economic boycott against the government. This was a form of peaceful protest. But President Caius considered it sedition, and he ordered more churches closed. In August, the situation started to become violent. Ordinary lay Catholics started to take up arms against the government, leading to an event known in Mexico as La Cristiada, and in the United States, it's known as the Cristero War. The government named the rebels Cristeros because they used Viva Cristo Rey, or Long Live Christ the King, as a rallying cry, and eventually the rebels adopted the name for themselves. The slogan, Viva Cristo Rey y Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, or Long Live Christ the King and Our Lady of Guadalupe, was emblazoned on the Cristero flag. The Cristero War affected large portions of Mexico, and Father Toribio's state of Jalisco was in the most violent area. The war would last for years, and as a terror tactic, the Federals would sometimes hang up the bodies of slain Cristeros and leave them hanging for long periods of time. What was happening with the Mexican bishops at this time? The bishops were really walking a tightrope. If they openly endorsed the Cristero movement, that could provoke an even worse situation for Mexican Catholics, including in parts of the country not affected by the war. So they gave the Cristeros tacit support, but not open endorsement. And that made some of the Cristeros mad. They were fighting for the faith, and they wanted the bishop's public endorsement. In February 1927, President Calles ordered every priest in the country to report to Mexico City for registration. But the priests recognized this as an attempt to seize control of the church, so they refused to comply and didn't show up, just taking their chances instead. 
bishops also could be the victims of persecution. Father Toribio's bishop, Archbishop Orozco of Guadalajara, was one of them. Calles had ordered him and other bishops to come to Mexico City. Archbishop Orozco thought he would be once again sent into exile because, you know, he'd already been exiled to the United States once before. But the archbishop didn't want to leave his flock, especially not at such a critical time. So beginning in October 1926, he fled to the hills and went into hiding. Even though he could have stayed at the homes of rich people, doing that would make him easier to find. So he stayed at the homes of poor people in the countryside, which led to some interesting situations. One night, while he was using candlelight to read a book, he noticed that a poisonous snake was crawling over his feet. So he froze and waited for the snake to pass on, which it eventually did. To continue his ministry as archbishop, Archbishop Orozco would send a young rural man into the city once a week on foot to deliver instructions. So he was able to at least kind of sort of fulfill his administrative duties as bishop. And what was Father Toribio doing? James Murphy explains. Like the archbishop, Father Toribio went about his work as best he could, risking his life every time he ministered the sacraments. He celebrated Mass in secret, well aware of the risks to himself and his hosts. He heard confessions, knowing how the government could abuse that sacrament. In one rural parish, government agents posed as priests, then used the information gained in the confessional to arrest the parishioners. And he distributed communion many, many times. That was the most common form of Eucharistic worship at the time, because the bishops had closed all the churches in the nation 18 months earlier in protest against government persecution. People flocked to communion stations because they were all they had. And Father Toribio was taking real risks. Multiple priests had been murdered by federal forces during the persecution, including several that he personally knew. Eventually, Father Toribio got new instructions from the archbishop. He was being reassigned, so this was his fifth and final assignment as a priest. In 1927, he was instructed to move to Tequila. And yes, that's a place. The famous beverage is named after it because tequila is made there. In fact, since Father Toribio was in hiding because of the persecution, he took up residence in an abandoned tequila distillery. With him were his brother, Roman, who had also become a priest, and his older sister, Kika, who you'll remember from earlier in our story. There, he secretly ministered to the people of tequila for five months. But on Tuesday, February 21st, 1928, the day before Ash Wednesday, they got word that soldiers would be searching the area. So Father Toribio and his siblings spent the night hiding in the bushes in a canyon. And the next morning, they came back to the tequila factory and found local people waiting for mass and to receive the customary ashes that are distributed on Ash Wednesday. Later in the day, he told his brother, Father Roman, that he was sending him to Guadalajara, and he didn't explain why. Before Roman left, Father Toribio had him hear his confession, and he gave him a sealed letter that he was told not to open until instructed to. Father Roman did not know what was up, but since his older brother was his boss, he went along and left for Guadalajara on the 23rd. On the evening of the next day, Friday the 24th, 
Father Toribio was doing clerical work, no pun intended. He was recording baptisms and weddings and filling out sacramental certificates. He stayed up through much of the night, taking only occasional brief naps. At 4 a.m. on Saturday the 25th, he woke up his sister and asked her to prepare the altar for his morning Mass. But he was too tired to say Mass and eventually went to bed. James Murphy explains what happened next. About an hour later, federal troops found him there in a peaceful slumber, one arm covering his face. A soldier moved his arm from his face and yelled, This is the priest! Kill him! Father Trebio woke up, sat up in the bed, and said, I am the priest, but do not kill me. Before he could say any more, a shot rang out along with cheers of, Kill the priest! He got up and staggered a dozen steps out of the building before a second shot rang out, and he fell into the arms of his horrified sister who had followed him. Kika looked into his anguished eyes one last time, and he died. She had supported her brother's vocation in both childhood and adulthood, and now God had given her the privilege of holding him in her arms during his last agony. Reportedly, at this point, Kika shouted, Courage, Father Toribio! Merciful Christ, receive him! Viva Cristo Rey! Murphy continues, What happened next could be considered a small gesture of mercy. The officer in charge of the troops allowed the people to put Father Toribio's body on an improvised stretcher and carry it in procession to Tequila. The gesture was soon diminished, however, when unruly soldiers began to whistle and sing vulgar songs along the way. Kika ignored the insults and walked barefoot behind the body, praying the rosary. In Tequila, the time for kind gestures was over. Soldiers dumped the body in front of City Hall and forced the weak and pale Kika to walk barefoot to the barracks, where they subjected her to hunger and ridicule for three days before releasing her. Afterwards, Roman opened the letter that Father Toribio had given him and discovered it was a final testament asking him to take care of their aging parents and expressing concern for their siblings. So Father Toribio had foreseen his death, and it was widely thought that he sent Father Roman to Guadalajara to protect him. Father Toribio was murdered at 27 years of age. He was buried in the cemetery of Tequila, though his family eventually moved his body to Santa Ana, to the chapel, where he said his first public mass, and that's where his remains are today. In 1992, Pope John Paul II beatified Father Toribio along with multiple other martyrs of the Cristero War, and in the year 2000, he canonized them as saints. Among those he canonized were not only Father Toribio Romo, but also his friend Father Justino Orona, the pastor who took him under his wing in Cuquillo. Father Orona had also been martyred when he was gunned down by federal troops just a few months after Father Toribio. Okay, Jimmy, you said you'd tell us the dramatic story of a saint, and you've done that, but you also promised us a mystery, and now it's time to pay up. What's the mystery you've been promising? Well, so far, we've discussed the life of Father St. Toribio Romo, but we haven't focused on his afterlife. So, here comes the twist. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World... San Diego is one of the most prominent cities in California. With nicknames like America's Finest City and the Birthplace of California, it's the home of one and a half million people. It's the home of the oldest church in California, 
founded by St. Junipero Serra. San Diego is an international city with people from all over the world. And located on the Mexican border, thousands of people cross back and forth between Mexico and the United States. But few people know that in the 1990s, the border region began getting a reputation as a paranormal hotspot. So how did it begin? Could it really have been the ghost of Luis Santiago? What about the actions the ghost allegedly performed, like saying he was sad and could not yet move on? What about the fact that he intercepted border crossers and told them to turn themselves in? I can imagine people taking different positions here because this is a highly politicized and polarized issue. Someone who favors letting people cross the border unimpeded might argue that a saved soul simply would not do that. And if anything, he would help the crossers. On the other hand, someone who doesn't favor letting people cross the border unimpeded might argue the exact opposite, saying that a saved soul would tell people crossing the border illegally to stop and turn themselves in so they can be returned to their own countries. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this story of the Border Patrol ghost? I think the story of Agent Luis Santiago is very compelling. It does not seem to me that anything from the faith perspective prevents the stories of his ghost from being accurate. Agent Elmore comes across as a credible author and other naturalistic explanations for what happened are implausible, but you'll have to make up your own mind about it. So in episode 164, we heard the story of Border Patrol agent Luis Santiago, the Border Patrol ghost. He was a Border Patrol agent in San Diego who was killed in the line of duty when a smuggler known as a pollero or chicken farmer apparently caused him to fall to his death. Afterward, his ghost appeared multiple times. He told illegal border crossers to turn themselves in, but he also guided them to safety. Eventually, he apparently confronted the living human smuggler who had caused his death. The pollero then panicked and fell to his own death, fulfilling justice. Afterwards, Agent Santiago's ghost was at peace and never appeared again. Since we released that episode, I've been planning on doing this one, and the twist is that today's episode is the inverse of episode 164. Whereas Agent Santiago's ghost stopped illegal border crossers, St. Toribio's ghost is thought to help them. Reportedly, in the late 1970s, before he was beatified, St. Toribio began appearing to border crossers and helping them. These stories accelerated in the 1980s, and today St. Toribio is unofficially regarded as a patron saint of migrants. There are even reportedly both Mexican and U.S. dioceses advocating him to be officially declared the patron saint of migrants. And he's also picked up a couple of nicknames. In Spanish slang, smugglers that crossers hire to bring them across the border are known both as coyotes and polleros. Uh, literally, literally, a coyote is the dog-like animal that we refer to in English as a coyote or a coyote, uh, depending on what part of the country you're from. And pollero is a Spanish word that literally means chicken farmer, from the Spanish root pollo or chicken. Human coyotes, or smugglers, have a reputation for not being very good people. They are, after all, criminals, and they have a reputation for not treating their passengers very well. Sometimes they steal from and abuse their passengers. And I'll let the adults in the room figure out what that means. And sometimes they leave them to die in the desert. 
But since St. Toribio is, you know, a saint, he rescues and helps border crossers. He has a reputation as un santo coyote, or a holy coyote. Uh, Similarly, since he's a priest, he's known as el padre pollero, or the father chicken farmer. But by whatever name he's called, he has a decades-long reputation of showing up in person and helping border crossers, as well as answering a lot of prayers for other forms of intervention. And that's what we'll be talking about in the Faith and Reason perspective. And before we get to that, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Stephen Y., Shay J., Father Eric F., Patarzina Z., and Matthew R. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about St. Toribio Romo's appearances to border crossers? From the faith perspective, we need to look at questions like, do ghosts exist and do they ever appear to people? And would a ghost help border crossers? From the reason perspective, there are two basic theories that we need to consider. First, that there is nothing paranormal going on here, that the reported appearances are all due to natural causes like legends, hoaxes, or misperception. And second, that there is something paranormal happening here, in which case we could be dealing with a haunting, apparition, poltergeist, or something else. All right, what can we say about St. Toribio Romo from the faith perspective? Do ghosts exist, and do they really appear to people? From the faith perspective, yes and yes. Uh, From the general Christian faith perspective, ghosts, that is to say, spirits or souls, do exist. And from the specifically Catholic faith perspective, they can appear to people. We've talked about uh, that a good bit in previous episodes, so I won't go into the subject in detail here. But spirits appearing to people is exactly what happens in the apparition of a saint, whether it's the Virgin Mary or someone else. Also, according to the common theological opinion, the souls in purgatory can also manifest, for example, to ask for prayers. And according to St. Thomas Aquinas, God can even allow the souls of the damned to manifest, such as to motivate the living to get back on the straight and narrow. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes involving ghosts and apparitions, you may want to check out episode 84 on private revelations, episodes 40, 64, and 65 on Our Lady of Fatima, episode 60 on Our Lady of La Salette, episode 99 on Our Lady of Akita, Episodes 192 and 193 on Our Lady of Cabejo, Episode 115 on the Wizard Clip, Episode 164 on Luis Santiago, the Border Patrol Ghost, Episode 174 on the Greenbrier Ghost Murder Trial, and Episode 210 on the Haunted House of Marin County. And there are probably others I'm not thinking of. 
not to mention episode one on on ghosts. On ghosts. Yes, true. <laughs> so, uh, what about the other faith perspective questions? Would a ghost do what Saint Terribio was reported to do and help border crossers? This is a question that we touched on when we discussed the Border Patrol ghost, and I can see people taking different positions on it. Uh, people who are fine with border crossing um, could think it's just fine for a ghost to help them, and people who aren't fine with border crossing could think it's not fine for a ghost to help them. However, I think the subject is more complex than that. To set a basic framework, here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say on the subject of immigration. Paragraph 2241. The more prosperous nations are obliged, to the extent they are able, to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. Political authorities, for the sake of the common good for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions especially with regard to the immigrants' duties toward their country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens. That's a very balanced statement. It doesn't treat immigration as an unlimited human right that must never be denied, even when it's done illegally. But it does counsel generosity on the part of prosperous nations toward immigrants. The Catechism thus does not take a simplistic yes or no position on immigration, and I think that's for a good reason. The situation is too complex and needs to be sorted out through public and legislative debate based on local conditions. As a result, I don't think that there is a single moral stance on immigration that fits all situations. Instead, there are moral principles that have to be applied to concrete situations that differ from one place in time and one individual to another. This means that saints also will be applying moral principles to concrete situations, and they won't be taking an always yes or always no position. Instead, they would have a sometimes yes and sometimes no position, and that's exactly what we see with both Luis Santiago and Toribio Romo. Agent Santiago was opposed to illegal immigration during his life, and in the afterlife he did tell crossers to give themselves up to the authorities so that they'd be safely returned to home. But he also helped guide them to resources like water to save their lives. Similarly, St. Toribio Romo was opposed to immigration during his life. It appears he wasn't just opposed to illegal immigration to the U.S., but to most people going to the U.S. in general, including legally. Uh, he wanted them to remain at home in Mexico and warned them of the dangers of U.S. society. And then in the afterlife, he's been reported to help border crossers not only by helping save them in the desert, such as helping them find water, but he's also given the money and counseling. Uh, on where to find work and things like that. However, as we'll hear in the reason perspective, he's also met people and told them to go back home, to just turn around. So both Luis Santiago and Toribio Romo have been reported to both help border crossers and to encourage them to return home. 
neither has applied a one-size-fits-all solution. And I think that's the right thing to do because of the human complexities of the issue. So I don't see any reason to say that St. Terribio couldn't be appearing based on his behavior with respect to border crossers. What can we say about St. Terribio Romo from the reason perspective? You said that he doesn't just appear to border crossers. He also receives prayers for lots of different types of interventions. Yes, and so does every saint. They all get asked to intercede with God for miracles and other favors. I'm sure that he, like every other saint, does intercede with God, and sometimes miracles occur. However, I'm not in a position to evaluate those. So in this episode, we won't be talking about the things that people have attributed to his intercession in general. Instead, we'll be discussing his reported appearances to border crossers. Let's look at a few examples of such appearance reports. Can you relate any of them? In an article, Alfredo Mirande recounts several of them. Uh, Here's one that was related to him by a Colombian priest who now ministers at Sagrado Corazon, or Sacred Heart Parish in Turlock, California. He related the testimonio of a parishioner at Sagrada Corazon who confided that Padre Toribio had appeared to him as he was trying unsuccessfully to cross the border. As he was sitting down, desolate and dejected, a good-looking young man, dressed like an American, appeared, said hello, and asked if he needed help. The young man took him across the border to a house where people took him in. The parishioner was extremely grateful and asked how he could repay the stranger for his generosity. The young stranger told the parishioner that he could repay him by visiting him at his home in Mexico, and he gave him an address. When the migrant went to Mexico to thank the stranger, he was told that the man had been dead for many years. And here's another one that Mirande got from the parish priest at the sanctuary of, of Padre Toribio in Santa Ana. He apparently received this testimony in confession, which would add additional credibility, since deliberately lying to a priest in confession is a mortal sin, and you really don't want to do that. Another person recounted the story of two young men from San Ignacio Cerro a nearby town who had gone to the United States. This was 10 years ago, more or less, that is, around the year 2003. Someone had told their mother to ask El Padre Turibio for his blessing, and so she came to the sanctuary and took an image of El Padre Turibio with her. The young men did not know Padre Turibio or what he looked like, nor had she heard of him before. The brothers were at the border for two weeks and were not able to cross, so they returned home. When they arrived, after greeting family members, they saw a photograph of El Padre Turibio and asked, Why do you have that man's image up there? The family members replied, He is a saint, and we went to ask him to help and protect you. Then the brothers embraced and started crying. And the family asked, What happened? What happened? The brothers responded, It's that he gave us money at the border and said we would not be able to cross, and he told us, Go back to your family because they are very worried about you. So this was a case where St. Terribio reportedly told border crossers to return home. And here's another incident related by St. Terribio's relative, David Romo. One of the first written accounts of Terribio's miracles was from a 45-year-old undocumented immigrant from Zacatecas named Jesus Buendia Gaitan. In 2002, he told a reporter from the Mexico City magazine Contenido about a strange experience he'd had two decades earlier. In the early 80s, Buendia had hired a smuggler in Mexicali, Contenido reported. But as soon as they crossed the line, a Border Patrol van spotted them 
and to avoid arrest, Jesus escaped into the desert. After walking for several days in desolate trails, more dead than alive from heat stroke and thirst, he saw a truck approach. A young, thin man with light skin and blue eyes who spoke perfect Spanish got off the truck, offered him water and food, and showed him a place where farm workers were needed. The Good Samaritan told Buendia to look him up once he had a job and money. He was sent to the church in Santa Ana de Guadalupe. I almost had a heart attack when I saw the photograph of my friend hanging over the altar, Buendia recalled. Since then, I prayed to him every time I set off for the United States in search of work. So those are some examples of the kinds of things that are reported about St. Toribio's appearances in the border region. And notice that there's a pattern to them. Here's how his relative David Romo describes the pattern. In the 1980s, reports began to surface of a young man in a red pickup truck bearing food and water who would arrive to help unauthorized immigrants stranded in the deserts of California, Arizona, and New Mexico. In some reports, the man appeared just in time to rescue people from drowning in the Rio Grande. In others, he made them invisible to the Border Patrol, or protected them from rattlesnakes, or advised them on where to find work. He wore a cowboy hat and boots, or he was dressed as a priest. When the grateful immigrants asked how they could ever repay him, the man told them not to worry. When you return to Mexico, he said, just go to Santa Ana de Guadalupe, a tiny village in Jalisco, and ask for Toribio Roma. When the immigrants would then end up paying a visit to Santa Ana and ask for Toribio Romo, they would be told he could be found in the local church. And going to the church, they would find the shrine where he's buried, and they would realize that they had encountered him in the desert, that they'd met a saint. So that's an archetypal account. Common elements are that he appears to be a normal person, dressed like either a cowboy or a priest. He gives some form of aid to the border crossers, and then he says to look him up in Santa Ana without revealing that he's a saint, which actually kind of goes along with the sense of humor he displayed during life. Then let's talk about the possible explanations you mentioned for these reports. One of them was legends. Could these all just be stories that have been circulating among border crossers, legends of events that didn't actually happen? Well, we're dealing with a folk process here that's driven by oral accounts. So I think it's quite likely that there are legends about St. Toribio appearing to people that aren't grounded in historical reality. However, one of the characteristics of things that are purely legendary is that you can never locate eyewitnesses. It's always a friend of a friend saw this, but you can never trace it back to specific people. And that's not true here. There are specific, identifiable people who claim to be eyewitnesses, who say they personally met this man in the desert. So this is not simply a matter of legends. Something more than that must be involved. What about hoaxes, then? Could the reported eyewitnesses just be lying? People do lie, and it's quite possible that some of the people who claim to have encountered St. Toribio are pulling hoaxes. Uh, perhaps they would be lying just to entertain themselves by pulling a fast one on other people, or perhaps they're trying to attract attention. Hey, I encountered a saint, or maybe they're lying for some other reason. But I don't think that all of the people who report encountering St. Toribio are doing so. Um, the priest at the St. Toribio's Sanctuary, has reportedly received many testimonies from people in confession. 
And it isn't likely that all of these people are lying in confession. Then let's talk about possible paranormal explanations for the reports of St. Terribio. What should we know here? When I started taking classes in paranormal field investigations, one of the things that was stressed was learning the patterns that historically appear in reports of ghosts and things like that. There are advantages to doing studies of the patterns. One of them is that by knowing the patterns, it makes it easier to figure out what kind of phenomenon or phenomena you're dealing with, as you can easily classify it. Another is that it makes it easier to detect fraud. If someone comes to you and says they've got a ghost or a poltergeist, and it sounds like something from a horror movie rather than what actually appears in historical accounts, then they're less likely to be telling you the truth. At a minimum, if something doesn't fit the historical patterns, then it tells you you're looking at something that's different in some way, and you can then try to figure out what accounts for the difference. So let's look at how the standard St. Terribio appearance reports compare to historic reports of ghostly paranormal activity, like hauntings, apparitions, and poltergeists. The first classic category is hauntings. Do the St. Terribio accounts fit the historic pattern for these? In parapsychology, hauntings are are not what you'd think. Um, hauntings are believed to be not actual ghosts, but place memories, recordings of past events that repeat themselves over and over. The key characteristic of a haunting is that it repeats without much variation. Like if you see someone, that, you know, a ghost, repeatedly walking down a staircase, but it never talks to you, all it ever does is walk down the staircase, then it's repeating. It's not interactive. Um, and you can't really hold a conversation with a haunting. But you can hold conversations with St. Terribio when he appears. He seems fully interactive and can give people advice on a wide variety of subjects, like whether to go home or where to find work. So the St. Terribio appearances don't fit the pattern of a haunting. What about the next category, apparitions? In parapsychology, apparitions are when a spirit appears or manifests to people, and this is what you classically think of as a ghost. The same is true in religion, as when an apparition or appearance of a saint occurs. The distinguishing characteristic of apparitions is that they are interactive, so you can hold an intelligent, wide-ranging conversation with them. And that applies to the St. Toribio appearances. So that element of the pattern fits. What doesn't fit is the physicality of the St. Toribio appearances. If a saint or another ghost shows up, they typically don't have their body with them, and so they don't physically interact with you. They don't typically drive a pickup truck. They don't typically give you a ride in their pickup truck. And while they might tell you where to find water or money, they don't hand you a water bottle or physical dollars or pesos. So the St. Terribio appearances don't fit the classic pattern of apparitions. What about poltergeists? Do they fit there? Poltergeists do involve moving physical objects. Uh, the objects are moved by psychokinesis or PK. At least that's how the reports are understood. And while most poltergeists are thought to be caused by living human beings, 
uh, ones that are displaying PK without realizing it, ghosts are also reported to use PK. Uh, since St. Toribio is currently dead and does not have his body, uh, he would have to use psychokinesis or mind over matter to accomplish the physical interactions described in his appearances, like driving a pickup truck or handing people money that doesn't just vanish once the encounter, encounter is over. However, the way the PK would be used in these encounters doesn't fit the historical poltergeist patterns. In the case of a living human being, the PK tends to be spontaneous and uncontrolled. Uh, frequently, it appears to be the person is working out stress or frustrations by subconsciously doing stuff psychokinetically, like making banging sounds or moving objects without realizing that that's what they're doing. At least that's how most poltergeists are understood. And when a ghost shows up and uses PK, they typically don't use it to do the kinds of things that Father Toribio is reported to do. An apparition using psychokinesis might open or close a door or move an object across the room, but they don't typically drive a pickup or carry cash with them. Those are activities that are much more characteristic of living people rather than departed spirits. So the St. Toribio appearances also don't fit the classic poltergeist patterns. And that's one of the things that struck me when I started reading about them. I initially thought, oh, these are going to be standard apparitions just like we had in the Border Patrol ghost. You know, St. Toribio is going to appear to people and point them in the right direction and things like that. But instead, he's driving a pickup truck and handing out water bottles and cash. So I was surprised at how the reports don't fit the classical parapsychological patterns. Do we have a pattern that they do fit, even if it isn't in parapsychology? I think so. The category that these best fit is miracles. These remind me of the accounts of miracles that you read about from, for example, the Middle Ages, or like the miracle accounts in the Bible, where angels show up and interact with people physically. Uh, the St. Toribio appearance reports have the same kind of physicality that those do, and they have the kind of purposeful, goal-directed character that's like those as well. How did thinkers in the Middle Ages explain the physicality of spirits that didn't have bodies in these supernatural encounters they reported? They believed that uh, the spirits were capable of assuming temporary bodies. For example, in his Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas Aquinas reasons that their temporary bodies are condensed out of air, so he calls them aerial bodies. The fact they're made out of air explains why they can appear and disappear the way that bodies made out of something like Earth can't. Um, the spirits just let the bodies dissipate back into the air when they're done with them. Of course, there are other ways of explaining such physicality. You don't have to go with the air-based theory. It could just be a form of psychokinesis, allowing them to create solid forms and manipulate light, like holograms on the holodeck in Star Trek. They they could just be psychokinetic force fields that are configured on a micro level to reflect certain frequencies of light. And you'd need some kind of advanced psychokinesis anyway in order to manipulate air into a temporary body. So I don't think you need to appeal to air in particular. It could just be advanced psychokinesis. And if angelic spirits can pull that off, 
then human spirits could potentially do so as well, especially if they're in an upgraded, glorified state like the soul of a, like the soul of a saint. So if the St. Terribio appearances are genuinely paranormal, I think that would be the most likely explanation of them. Advanced psychokinesis on the model of what we see in angelic miracle accounts. What about the fact that in these encounters, St. Terribio was sometimes said to dress as a cowboy instead of a priest, and that he doesn't identify himself as a saint? Do those pose any challenges? I don't think so. Uh, In ghostly apparitions, spirits are reported to sometimes change their appearance. Ghosts uh, have sometimes been known to change the appearance of the clothing that they're wearing. Um, They would be doing that mentally, telepathically, but you could also do the same thing psychokinetically. Furthermore, in the biblical reports of angel encounters, the angels sometimes aren't said to be wearing anything distinctive. I mean, sometimes they are said to be wearing clothing that's brilliantly white, but other times they're apparently dressed in ordinary clothes, just like regular people, and they're even thought to be regular people initially. And there are certainly lots of regular people in the desert southwest, both in the United States and in Mexico, who wear cowboy hats and boots. So if St. Terribio was dressing appropriately to the cultural context, then that would be quite expected. On the other hand, he might sometimes want to be dressed as a priest, since that's what he was in life. When it comes to the fact that he doesn't identify himself as a saint, I also don't think that's unexpected. In the Bible, angels often don't identify themselves as angels. And in approved apparitions of the saints, the Virgin Mary frequently doesn't identify herself. Even when the visionaries ask and say, who are you? She often replies rather enigmatically and doesn't just come out and say, I'm the Virgin Mary. So given those facts, and the fact St. Terribio was known to have a playful sense of humor in life, I wouldn't think it unexpected that he plays coy about the fact he's a saint. And it brings home a sense of wonder and drives home the religious message more if the people he encounters later realize that they were talking to the apparition of a saint. I mean, realize it only later. So if these are supernatural encounters, I don't see that as a barrier. You've said a couple times, if these are paranormal or supernatural encounters, could they be something else? There is one other natural theory that we need to consider, which is misidentification. On this view, border crossers really would be encountering someone in the desert who helps them. They just later misidentify the person as St. Terribio when it's not. On this theory, it would be an ordinary living human that they meet. Why would they misidentify him as St. Terribio? I can think of a number of reasons. One of them is that the man they meet may just happen to have a superficial resemblance to Terribio Romo. Uh, You know, they don't encounter him for a long time. I mean, just a few minutes or maybe an hour or two. And then at a much later date, they see a picture of St. Terribio and notice the resemblance. And not having an exact memory of the man's exact facial details, they then conclude it was St. Terribio. What about the fact he says to visit him in Santa Ana and that his name is Terribio Romo? I can think of two explanations here. First, his name might really be Toribio Romo. Toribio is a real name, and it's much more common in Mexico than in the U.S. 
I even know of other people from Santa Ana who have been named Toribio, so it's a local name. Further, Santa Ana is a small community where lots of people are related to the saint, and lots of people have the last name Romo. David Romo talks about this in his article. Especially given that there's a famous priest and saint from the city, some locals may have named their children after him, and so you would get new Toribio Romos for purely natural reasons. So maybe there's a currently living Toribio Romo from Santa Ana who has decided to help border crossers in the desert, and maybe he looks like St. Toribio Romo because they're related. You said there was a second explanation you could think of. What was that? Maybe someone just wants to give St. Toribio the credit. You know, lots of people do good deeds in honor of a saint. They'll go out and feed the hungry or something or give money to a homeless person. And then if the person asks who they are, they might say Joseph or Martin de Porres or some other saint they want to get the credit. A man honoring the memory of St. Toribio might then tell people he helps to go find him in Santa Ana sending them on a kind of unwitting pilgrimage where they'll eventually realize the identity of the saint that he was honoring by his actions. And a man who was inspired to do this by St. Toribio might see himself as an agent of St. Toribio working on behalf of him, making it even more appropriate that people make a pilgrimage to Santa Ana and give St. Toribio thanks for the help they received in his name. Uh, It seems to me that if the accounts are to be naturally explained, one of the misidentification scenarios is the most likely. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on St. Toribio? Toribio Romo is a fascinating figure with a compelling life story. He was murdered by federal soldiers during the Cristero War, and today he's a saint. Like any saint, people ask for his intercession, and sometimes miracles are produced as a result of his intercession. He's also reported to appear to border crossers and either give them assistance in crossing or telling them to turn back. These reports are likely due to a number of causes. Some may just be legends or hoaxes, but others can't be explained in this way. For those reports that remain, some may have a natural explanation and some may be cases of mistaken identity. And it's possible that one or more men may have decided to help border crossers and give St. Toribio the credit. But it's also possible that some of these may be genuinely miraculous encounters with St. Toribio, like the appearances of angels we read about in the Bible. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to James Murphy's book, The Martyrdom of St. Toribio Romo. Also, his page on Wikipedia, David Romo's article, My Tio the Saint, meaning My Uncle the Saint, Alfredo Mirande's paper, Toribio Romo, El Padre Pollero, uh, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, a summary of Rerum Novarum, and we'll have a link to the St. Toribio Romo Fund, which is a charity connected with St. Toribio. So that does it for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about St. Toribio Romo. You can let us know what you think by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, 
visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for all of the video and animation work they did on this episode of Mysterious World and on Mysterious World in general. You can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my YouTube channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going back to Prohibition-era New York in the 1930s and telling you the amazing story of a man named Iron Mike Malloy. And wow, is it an amazing story with lots of surprising twists. That may be an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write podcast reviews and help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 256. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willett. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting FitCat Catholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash technology.